Dan Burson challenged me on Wednesday. He thought I might ask some questions. So I suppose I ought to start out with one question right off the bat. This one's an easy one. I ask if we go along, I might get a little bit. As I mentioned, we are concluding a very brief series on uh, the parable in Luke chapter 15. But Trent started us out with a thought from a different passage. And so who can remember what thought it was? Yes. Yes, it was. You quote that? And, and I actually had that scribbled down. You guys know nothing about the way I prepare for these things, or else you'd never have me get up here. But uh, I do just kind of scribble down thoughts. Well, before Trent got up and spoke, I had that very verse scribbled down in my notes because the, the thought I was having about that is that, you know, we often say, well, when we get to heaven, we'll know everything. We know everything. I mean, unless you're kind of of the Mormon persuasion, you know, from God or something. No, it doesn't work that way. We're, we will, we will be engaged in learning. So we will spend eternity. And that is what eternal life is, getting to know better and better the triune God, the Father and the Son, Spirit even. As the, uh, hymn says that we will, that the Holy One, this is what I, so the thought is that we will be learning about our triune God. It will be our eternal occupation and that we will need eternity to, uh, Brother Victor often says, get a grasp of the subject. And as the hymn writer has aptly put it, concerning the Holy One who knew no sin, his beauty shineth far above our feeble power of praise. We shall live and learn his love through everlasting. So we are here this morning. I have a little uh, prerequisite to that eternal and uh, just a few thoughts concerning his character, character of our God and the character of Christ. So um, Trent did inspire me to think about other side of the coin, so to speak, or the rest of the story, he talked about the prodigal. And indeed, it is true that there are several hymns. We've sung a couple of them today, and we sung one last week, where we sing about the prodigal. I think we have, but there were two sons involved in that, and I think a little bit about the second son. And I think it's probably the case that here, believe it or not, for us to think of ourselves as the prodigal rather than the elder brother. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Dr. Gooding, in his uh, book, According to Luke, I would recommend that you, if you haven't read it, you do so at some point in time. Uh, it's available totally for free in digital form at keybibleconcepts.org. And he has a way of seeing movements and stages dividing up seeing divisions in in the scriptures that aren't readily apparent to me anyway as I read, for instance, the Gospel of Luke. But he has in this portion that we're looking at, he has he has it within stage three of the Lord's journey, and um, he has entitled this stage, The Destination That Awaits Us. And as we've already thought about what we'll be doing through all eternity, it is good to remind us 
of the destination. The destiny awaits us. And in this stage, the Lord Jesus brings out in his teaching not only the destination that awaits us as believers, but also the destination who do not, who have not come to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's usually not good to read to you all, but I'll just read a a short uh, part of Dr. Gooding's introduction to this stage. And it is marked, by the way, by two verses to tell you this stage goes from chapter 13, verse 22, to chapter 17, verse 10. And uh, those verses form the boundaries of his analysis of this stage, of the destination that awaits us, are verses that tell us, remind us, that the Lord was on his journey to Jerusalem. So there is that those mileposts there that set this stage apart. So just a, a sentence or two here. Dr. Gooding tells us, it is, of course, only natural that Christ's journey brought him ever nearer that, I'm sorry, it is, of course, only natural that as Christ's journey brought him ever nearer to his own destination of glory, and I might add, as we certainly remember this morning, glory by way of the cross, that the Lord should remind people ever more frequently of the two possible destinations that await them at the end of their journey through life, either inside the Father's house with its banquet of joy and satisfaction or outside the Father's house with its eternal frustration, pains. So turning to uh, our subject matter for this class, I would inquire of you as we look at Luke chapter 15, what was the occasion for the Lord giving this parable, described as one parable, what was the occasion of giving this parable concerning the lost possession? Sir, I don't know how much of a dialogue it was right at the outset, but they, they certainly, <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Thank you, Paul. Reading from verse 1 of chapter 15, then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So then, it says, So, because they made this complaint, so he spoke, the Lord Jesus spoke this parable to them. So let's back up a couple of steps, if you don't mind, to uh, into chapter 14. And what preceded, we need to think about what preceded the interest this particular time of tax collector notorious sinners. Verse 25, now great multitudes went with him, that is, went with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, daughters and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not Bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first 
and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else the other is, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions. So then he summarizes all that by saying, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has and not be a disciple. He gives a couple of thoughts concerning salt. Salt is good. If the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. And then he says, he who has ears to hear. So I wonder if these collectors who were part of that multitude, as apparently were some of the Pharisees and scribes, and of course the Lord's disciples were in there as well. I wonder if the thought was, well, if this rabbi, miracle-working rabbi, teacher, is telling us that he has something better than the best that this life can give, maybe ought to listen to what he apparently were there with ears ready to hear. You know, those are very hard verses for me. I don't know about for you. I tend to just want to, you know, okay, I got it. Yeah, that's saying makes... Okay, where were we now in the chapter? But really... Uh, it's just the first commandment, isn't it? Really? Summarized. Expounded upon. Thou will have no other gods. The Lord is saying that in our eternal contemplation, learning from him, that's what a disciple is. A disciple learns our full concentration, not upon other loved ones, not upon anything that we might have had. In. So are we willing Now, the interesting thing about that, of course, is if we're learning from him, if we're following him, if we're following his teachings, we will love our parents, our wives, our children in a much better and truer way than we ever could before, had we not been disciples. Interesting. So, as we've already thought about, this parable were to those who were demonstrating this parable in Luke chapter 15, was directed to those who really didn't have ears to hear. And that wasn't the tax collectors and the sinners, the scribes, because their reaction was to criticize the Lord for deigning, for having the gall to claim that he is some kind of religious teacher when he is willing to associate with scum. Like this. I mean, that's what they're saying. They are saying, can this associate with tax collectors who were considered traitors to the Jewish nation? They were outcasts, wealthy outcasts in some respects, as we know in the story of Zacchaeus, but nevertheless outcasts and notorious sinners. We not described exactly what they were, but they were obviously not those who were closely following the law. Pharisees, they. They, these, were unright. Well, so he's going to give them a parable. He's going to try to reach them through what he has to say next. And so, uh, let's read the first scene of the parable because it is one parable in three scenes. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. 
And when he has found it, he it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Many a tremendous gospel message has been given concerning verses. The shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life, willing to lay down his life for them, willingly did lay it, was willing to go do whatever it takes to go into the wilderness. This shepherd left the realms of glory to come down wilderness of a world to save. Now, one of the things that I want us to particularly think about as we go through this parable is justice. And we might consider good business sense. Was it good business sense, shepherd, to leave the 99 and perhaps all those other sheep would start to wander off to just get this one back? Some have said that the 99, that the idea here is that reflection of the Lord indeed coming from glory, from leaving the realm of angels, defined by non-wandering sheep, to rescue perishing mankind is symbolizing wandering sheep. And then, as you're thinking of that, let's read the second scene. Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, the woman is going to spend an inordinate effort, an inordinate amount of time, I suppose, to go searching for this one coin out of the ten. It's thought that this these coins made up uh, like a necklace or a bracelet or something they would wear on their head even. Uh, that was symbolic of an engagement, much the way that ladies wear engagement rings these days. And so it, it had not so much financial value as it had sentimental value, but did it make you know sense for her to spend all that effort to find this one lost coin? Perhaps she could go out and to buy several coins. In God's economy, yes, it made sense to go through the effort to find that which was lost, to light a lamp, signifying, of course, picturing the light of God. As some see the work of the sun in the first part, the first scene of the shepherd, some see the work of the Holy Spirit here in this second part as the one who searches diligently and eventually finds those who are willing to be found. Now, of course, the coin doesn't have any particular will. It's just there. So, last week, we heard about a prodigal and we concentrated on the wastefulness of that young son who uh, demanded his father that he give him his share of his inheritance and how that showed his lack of love for the father. And Trent had some very excellent applications concerning his actions and reactions. 
including his coming to his rightful mind and returning back to the Father after he lost all. He was lost, and then he lost everything else. He was really lost. And so he left off there with this thought, ending verse 24. Well, we'll go back to 23. So the fathers greeted the son, and he's brought the. he says, Bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. In each of these scenes, we have seen how important it is for the one who finds whatever he was looking for, to celebrate, to rejoice with others. Major point in his teaching to the scribes and Pharisees. And so he says, For my son was dead and is alive again. We'll see that outlook. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. So now let's look at older son. Now his older son was in the field, And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. He would not go into the house. If you look through this stage as I've defined it. You'll find a lot about houses and homes and banquets peppered throughout this section. He would not go in. Therefore, his father came out. He wouldn't go in, but the father came out to him and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, notice that he doesn't even call him his brother. This son of yours, you're responsible for this, father. You're responsible for this guy that wasted one third of our family wealth. This son of yours, Cain, who has devoured your livelihood, with harlots. You killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said back to the son, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost. Okay, we've thought about a little bit about did these other scenes make kind of wise business sense. What about justice? What about doing what's correct? Was it just? Was it correct? Was it right for the father to essentially reward the prodigal for simply coming back destitute or, uh, you know, for losing one? Was it right? Was it correct? Was it just? Who thinks it was just? Huh? It was just? No, it wasn't just. It wasn't until It wasn't just. It wasn't right. The elder son had it right. It's not right. I have been here. I have worked with you. I never left you. I have perfect fidelity to you, Father. The Pharisees and and the scribes, they were right. They were correct. It wasn't just that the Lord would lower himself to eat, to fellowship, to teach. Scum like that. 
It's not just. It's not justice. But it is grace. It's grace. It's what the Pharisees and the scribes were missing. It's what they were passing up. It's what they weren't understanding concerning the character of God and of his son. But he didn't come this time. He didn't come as the Lamb of God to give justice to men. He came to display grace, to give grace, to be the one, to be the just one who would give himself so that scum like that, tax collectors, and yes, he doesn't say it, but it's there. (laughs) And you too, Pharisees and scribes, I came for you. The father went out and pleaded with the elder son. Do you see the invitation the Lord was holding out to the ones who were his, really his greatest antagonists during his earthly ministry? Scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the high muckety-mucks of righteousness. He came for them as well. Son had a point. But in thinking of himself, in thinking of all that he had done, look at all that I've done. Look at how great a son I've been. He doesn't give thanks for everything that the Father gave him. The Father said it right. All I have is yours. But he wasn't satisfied. The heart of the Father. If he knew the heart of the Father, he would have expected that if and when his wasteful brother returned, that this is what he would be. This is exactly what he would He would Rejoice with a son that was dead, is now alive, that was lost. Oh, that we might know, that we might understand what it means to rejoice for those who were lost being found. There's many lessons that we can get from the elder son's reaction. One thought was he talks about how he was engaged in all this work. Look at all the work I've done. Well, works aren't going. But I'm thinking times, do I get so involved in my work that I'm not learning about the Father, not learning about the Son, not being guided by His Spirit to know more and more about Him, to know Him who is eternal life. We get too busy. Perhaps that's the older brother's excuse. There's lots of excuses. You'll see that in another one of the episodes, another one of the parables that the Lord gives in this section about coming into the house. And there was a great banquet prepared and the invitation went out to all. But many had excuses. Oh, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I don't have, I don't have time to go into the Father's house. I don't have a time, the time to enjoy his banquet. That's beneath me. In that scene, the feast wasn't good enough for those who declined the invitation. In this scene, the elder son thought he was too good to join in this part. Too good. I'm not going to go in celebrating that your son of yours. He wasted all this stuff. But there was, there were those that were rejoicing. The younger son, no doubt, would have been one of those, the father. But all in the household, all other than the, this eldest son were, I wonder if, uh, thought about this. They didn't have this hymn. It's one of our favorites it's ever been written a different verse kind of taking one of the verses and changing amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you 
and we rejoice. You were found. It's all that we should do. Let us not think that there's anyone, any one of us, any one of those out there, wilderness of a world, the Savior didn't come to seek and to because I'm each of us. Each of us was the wandering sheep. Each of us were the lost coin, not being able to do anything to find ourselves. And each of us were the prodigal. We're the ones who take who would take what God has given to us. The inheritance that he's talking about here is not our internal, eternal inheritance, of course. It's not a picture of that. It's a picture of his temporal blessings that he gives to us. And we take that and we have wasted it. And it's not just. It's not right. It's correct that those in heaven should rejoice once we have, once we have decided, yes, we will take the invitation to come into the Father's house and to be at his. Just one more thought as we look at this section. Uh, go back a little bit to Luke chapter 13, and we'll see where there was another house. So again, this section begins, and he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and we will answer and say, to, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are the, and indeed, there are last who will be first and the first who will be last. There is a whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come in. There will be a time when the invitation ceases, when the door closes. And then it's not whosoever will may come, but whosoever didn't. The Lord goes on and speaks of a desolate house in Jerusalem and how he lamented over it. Jerusalem was the place of the temple. And referring to that house, your house is desolate. The glory of God had left the temple. There were no... There was no rejoicing there. There was no, there were no loss. There were none that had been found. The house, how much he longed. So the scribes and Pharisees, very clear invitation. Not just for salvation, of course, but as we have thought about this, we can see in ourselves what it means to have fellowship with him. And we indeed will rejoice with him. There is a party. We have an invitation for it. It's a party you don't want to miss. Let's close. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us, for being willing to send your Son down to rescue and redeem us. We thank you for 
your word and the messages that it has for us. We pray that you would help us to have hearts that would be like your heart, that we would see the lost, and that we would want them to join the party. We pray that you would help us in this. We pray that you would help us to understand your heart of love and grace, that we might share that love and acts of grace with others around us as we pray these things in the Lord Jesus' precious name.